Please turn with me in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 23. We're continuing in our series in the uh, in the in the parables, and uh, this morning before us is the parable of the wise and foolish maidens. In the mid to late 60s, 70s, in that time period, there was a very influential Christian writer. Uh, by the name of Dr. Francis Schaeffer, and he was a big help to me in early university years, helping me to frame how I viewed the world and thought about uh, a whole series of matters that he helped make clear. One of the books I particularly enjoyed was entitled, How Should We Then Live? And that is the question that's before us this morning as we consider uh, this particular uh, parable, and we can turn to it in a few moments. We're going to work our way through uh, a few of the parts of the scriptures that you've opened already. A question like Francis Schaeffer was asked by our Lord to the disciples uh, just before the, the parables, uh, three parables that are a part of the unit we're studying together, uh, when he asked the question, who then is? So in that, buried in that question is the sense of the future and understanding the future and how we then should be, how then should we live. It's a very similar question to the one that Francis Schaeffer asked and the Lord helps his disciples and us uh, with that answer. Look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42 where this question comes from. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord your on what day your Lord will come. But understand this: if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and so on. His chief exhortation to his disciples and to all who would listen was this: So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then the question that frames our theme this morning by the Lord was this, who then is, and he continues with the parables, who uh, the Lord wanted us to emulate uh, and learn the lessons from within these uh, uh, parables. Who then is, who are we, and are we living up to the expectations of the Son of Man as we prepare for his, his coming? So that's the question, but what does it mean? What does that really practically imply for us uh, in our understanding? How did he help the disciples understand that? And how did he uh, want us to understand it as well? On the surface, at the surface level of this word watch is uh, something that we're all familiar with. Some of you, even last night, may have participated in this way, watch as a spectator, to look at as a spectator. But when you look at the way the Lord used that word, it was a very rich, multidimensional and probing type of exhortation he was giving. And I want to just outline a few of the definitions, definitions I pulled out from various locations. And we're going to come back to it near the end of the, of the talk. 
The, the second level is to observe with concern for the situation, to be awake, to avoid missing something, to be vigilant as keeping guard against enemies, to keep guard, to prevent a harmful outcome, to be expectant, waiting for the right signal, to be alert, to gain an opportunity, to be attentive, to discern a need, to superintend, uh, to strive uh, for a desired outcome. Even during this hour, God is calling us to watch, not just at a spectator's level like people watching a preacher, but at a, at a very engaged level to understand what it means to watch and be ready for his kingdom to come by living in such a way that he would, would please him, our beloved Savior and Lord. The parable of the wise and foolish maidens will come to in a moment or two. It is one of three parables that are, are, collected, are, are collected and are written as a unit by our Lord. And there are three of them, one of which we've already uh, taken up with uh, our brother David's uh, talk last week. He covered some of the context leading up. I just want to point out that I'm going to pull a little bit from that context that to frame the, the particular parable that we're looking at this morning. The uh, parable, or, or the context uh, that went before as part of the Olivet Discourse where it was a time period where Jesus uh, got together and sat down with the disciples. Thanks, brother. Uh, the denunciation of the Jewish leadership. And uh, secondly, the second main part of it that I want to highlight is, was his prophecy, Jesus' prophecy of leaving and returning. So let's just look at what, he, what went before and pick up the flavor of it from verse 31. So you testify against yourselves, Jesus now talking to the uh, Jewish leadership, against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your forefathers, you snakes, you brutes, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify and so on. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, Zechariah, whom murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stole those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your chicks as the hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you were not willing. And then verse 38, 39, the first part of this was the denunciation by Jesus of Israel where he was speaking to them within the temple guard and he... he uh, really was uh, uh, rejecting them at this point in time and turning his back uh, on the leadership of Israel. And then he uh, says in verse 39, For I tell you, uh, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. So the house is being left desolate. Jesus is leaving and he's going to return. So he, he then walks away from the, uh, the Jewish leadership and uh, he uh, somehow his disciples scramble to uh, to follow him. 
In Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, the story continues, and uh, Jesus prophesies the temple dis- destruction. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So within the temple, Jesus had just judged the Jewish leadership for the condition of their hearts. He told them how much he cared for Jerusalem but that it was being run by a leadership that was rejecting the very God, uh, the very prophet that God had sent to them. He starts to walk away from them, and his disciples run to him. They come alongside him and say, but Lord, as they often did, but Lord, what about these beautiful buildings, the temple buildings? Surely you're not walking away from the pride of Israel, from the center of our worship, from the center of our practices, the source of pride, As a nation, surely that's not what you mean. Let's just pause there for a moment before we continue the story and feel the reactions and the emotions of the disciples first. But Lord, they said, we left all to follow you. I'm reading into this a bit of summary of what we already know. Recently you have told us you are leaving. Now you have just put us all at war with the Jewish leaders. they're going to come after us. This is, a, this is dangerous territory for us. And then you tell us, you, a leader, we've given our lives to you. You're leaving? How can this be? Is this the nature of the kingdom of God that we were, that we were being prepared for? When is it coming? Just total fear and total misunderstanding of what is going to come ahead. So that's the emotion and reactions of the disciples. We need in our lives also to always ask the question when we look at the human part of the story to look at God's side of the story. And there's a way in which we could look at the Lord as complaining perhaps if we superimpose our natural reactions to what we see in the case of the Lord. Men, how long have I been with you? He did ask them that earlier on, didn't he? Yet you still don't understand. I am about to die for you. I am about to become the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. I'm about to leave you and return. And you are not prepared for what is coming. You are not watching with me. We know what happened very soon after that they were not watching with him. So maybe we're reading the wrong things into the Lord's mind. I think we are. Some of that is there, but maybe not with that human-posed tone. I think he's looking at, if we really look at what the Lord is doing, he's crying out in a way that says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my disciples, my disciples, how I long to keep you with me, how I want you to remain close to me, how I want you to learn the things that I am showing you as we walk through uh, these current steps. So if we can just feel the emotion of the disciples in particular and how they were responding to that situation that they were facing. The geography of the continuation of the story is important, I think, to just understand what what happened in the next little bit. It's summarized here for us. But they were in the temple. Jesus walked outside the temple and and said these words of prophecy about the temple destruction. 
And the disciples come alongside and then they leave. It seems that Jesus is walking away a little bit ahead of the disciples. It also seems that the disciples had some time to strategize, perhaps in confusion at first, but during that hour or so walk across the Kidron Valley from the temple to the Mount of Olives, I think they had time to formulate together some questions for the Lord to try and understand what, what he was talking about when he talk of, spoke of the destruction of the temple and other uh, things that are going to come, and in particular, coming back if you're leaving us during this very difficult, difficult period. So they frame three, three questions. When will this happen? This is in verses 1 and 2 of our, of our chapter 2024. 20, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? I don't know about you as a disciple, but me as a disciple, when I read this, I thought, good, we're going to find out the answers to those questions. It's going to be in 2020 or whatever. Even their questions re, uh, signify to us how little they still understood the nature of the king before them, where he was taking them, and their role in the kingdom at that point. I'd like to just summarize the, uh, a few of my general observations that I made that uh, uh, you may or may not accept as general observations, but I'll put them forward uh, to help us through this. He was talking at this point very much to the Jewish nation. He just judged the new Jewish nation leadership, and now he's teaching his disciples as to what their role in the future is going to be. The events in the chronology, destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. Notice that the rapture is not really outlined in these, uh, in these chapters, and that's a, for a separate study, as David coached us last week. He does, though, talk about the tribulation period, or at tribulation period, at least. Uh, he talked clearly about the return of Christ to earth when he's come, what he, the nature of his coming back to earth and at that time to set up the kingdom of heaven. Yes, I know we're not quite at the parable yet. Then in those answers, Jesus, uh, in these verses given for you study later, he outlines in answer to his questions and his answers are all interleaved together. He talks about a series of time periods, time period one, Time period two is the one after it. You just can't see the two. Time period three. And then an admonition section of the text that summarized means, said, keep watch and be ready. And then this unit of parables that are to be read together, I believe. And then he goes on to talk about time period four. He talks about the birth pains. He talks about distress, the tribulation time. He talks about Christ returning in glory and the context is for judgment. So when we read these parables, we need to look at the nature of the judgment that's to come. And we'll do that in a moment. In these three parables, ours is the, the second one in the list, of course. And then uh, the judgment of the king in time period four, which we will not look at. Now, this is where the rabbit trail could begin. And I'm not going to allow myself to go on this rabbit trail. David said last week that we'll be an event of study in our Bible studies to look at it. But I just wanted to map in the context of how I think those events need to be at least looked at together to determine your view of an understanding of what's, uh, what's to come. 
There's a time period that's not mentioned here, the church aid, the Gentiles being drafted, drafted in. Another event is the destruction of Jerusalem. Another event is the rapture of church. And you could add a lot of things to add to this study of the prophetic aspects of what Jesus is presenting. And that's not our purpose uh, this morning. Now, these three, just before we get right into our parable, I'd like you just to look at the three parables in a bit of a summary chart to see why they are a unit and what to look for in understanding these three parables. And David covered this very well for, for, uh, uh, for his parable, which was the first one. You, in all of them, you have a main uh, person identified as the kind of the main actor in the play. Uh, first one is the master. The second one is the groom. The third one is described as the man. The situation talks about when this master will return, when the groom will be expected sometime soon in the, uh, for the wedding ceremony, and the man who is away on a journey. And then the illustrated people is where we need to insert ourselves to put ourselves in that actor position. Uh, it talks about a servant. It talks about the ten maidens. And it talks about the servants in the third one. The charge given to them by the master, the main actor, is listed uh, there as well. The household, first one is the household and servants uh, are the charged ones. They're charged to uh, look, after the, look after them with the resources the main person had given. Second one is to meet the groom. The third one are the talents. Uh, the, the expectation of, the, of those actors are to be faithful and wise to be wise and known to the groom. Third one is about the expectation of being good and faithful. I love the way that our parable is sandwiched in the middle that focuses on being known by the groom. And uh, the, the, the judgment is given, and you can read those at your leisure. The basis of the judgment, the premise of it, was blessing versus execution in the first case. Being known versus exclusion in the second case. And the third one, the blessing versus ex, uh, exclusion uh, in the uh, third parable. Let's read our par- parable together. I think we know the story fairly well. But just to read it in your minds, let's read it aloud together and give my voice a break <clears throat> and help you to uh, read it. Let's read it together. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be Thank you. 
Thank you. A couple of weeks ago, our brother Mark uh, gave us a description of a Jewish uh, wedding process, of, of the Jewish wedding process, or at least one of them. And I won't repeat all about that that comes into play as well in this uh, one, but I'll just summarize it this way so that we can locate the parable of this marriage in the process of a Jewish marriage. Are you with me? So the Jewish marriage, as we understood, had a number of phases, as we do today, but maybe not just the same. Some elements are similar. There's the selection of the two to be married somehow, arranged by parents or two randomly falling in love or whatever the stories were. Then there was a negotiation between the groom and the bride's family as to what money would be paid in the way of a bride price. From that, hopefully, or often successful negotiation, there was a betrothal, which we see in Scripture several times, where they were the contract was signed, in other words. The amount was set, and uh, then they were referred to, not like us with a fiancé and fiancé, but with a... Uh, they were really called husband and wife during that uh, during that period of betrothal. During that time, there was the preparation period where the groom would uh, get ready, get his affairs in order, such that he could build a, his own little house in his family's area, in his family's area, as the tradition went, and, and so on. And then there was the presentation, where the uh, oftentimes up a year year later, at the end of this uh, presentation of this uh, preparation period. The groom would go to the bride's house at a time unknown uh, to the bride. Of course, that's the theory. I'm sure they had the sensibilities to know when he was coming, not the hour. And that's the case in the parable before us. And after he presents himself to pick up his bride, the purpose was he would take the bride from the fam- from her family's house to go to the groom's family house to uh, to have the marriage ceremony, and after the this presentation part, all of the part, all of the marriage mar- wedding party would be together, coming from or near the bride's house, and pro- have this grand procession to the groom's house uh, for the marriage ceremony, for the feast, uh, for the consummation, and for the celebration of the of the uh, of the of the wedding that often went for weeks and weeks. Hopefully ours went much longer than that. 49 years or something like that. So we're locating this parable for context in the highlighted one during the procession time. The groom has gone to the house. The announcements have been made. He's here. And now the, the gathering of the, of, the, of the various parties, the bridesmaids and the groomsmaids or whatever they were called in those days, uh, to walk towards the wedding feast. So if we look at the elements of the parable before us to seek to understand them, uh, the uh, I, I, I'm an engineer, I always do spreadsheets, you know that. And uh, I'm just trying to summarize the story uh, this way. The element of the story that needs we that are highlighted are uh, we just read about them all, about all of them. Implied in the story is the bride, not mentioned in the story, but implied obviously by virtue of the tradition of the marriage ceremony. The story, we just read the story, uh, and I've put those alongside the 
the people and the events uh, to the left. To just highlight the uh, the lamps and oil. Uh, they were used to, to meet the bridegroom, usually in the evening. Late evening was the tradition. And for that, they had they had these lamps with hopefully oil in them. And uh, the time, as I mentioned earlier, was an unknown time where the group, groom would arrive to bring the bride. And uh, the announcement, the cry, he has come, except then the shut door, the separation of those who would be welcomed to the feast on some basis. Then the gatekeeper, who uh, was the gatekeeper on behalf of the groom, and the wedding banquet itself. Now, on the right-hand side are my understandings of these texts and how they can be uh, understood by the disciples first and also by us today. Uh, the ten maidens, the ten virgins, if most of your translation says they were, the, they were likely the uh, bridesmaids. They were friends of the bride. In the case of the bridegroom, the Son of Man is the one who returns, and that's, that's all from the context of the, where the story lies in Scripture. Jesus was trying to teach them, I am going away, I'm going to return. The disciples want to know, well, when is this going to happen? And uh, the Son of Man is the main element of these three stories uh, uh, because Jesus is telling them and telling us that's what he wants as the chief actor in the, in the world of, of history. Uh, the lamps and the oil are interesting. They seem to be, uh, uh, this is reading a little bit into it. You may have some other thoughts here, but the lamp seems to refer to the profession of who they were. They were the bridesmaids. They were going to the, to the, to the wedding. They were invited guests, presumably, and uh, th- there was the, the lamps. But it seems to be that there was some, and I don't really understand the details of the they were somehow not known by the groom. And don't know what this is all about. But the, there were five who were wise, five were foolish, and I know we're not to read too much into parables. But I, I would like to add, try to inject this into, or the application of this story at least, that the lamps were a profession, are to be a profession of faith for those seeking to be with God for, forever. And the oil represents genuine faith. They genuinely were known by the uh, by the main actor, and uh, they were gener- regenerated in the Christian sense by the Spirit of God, which oil often represents in Scripture. And you can look at those verses from which that those thoughts flow. Like the disciples, like us today, uh, his return is at an unknown time. Uh, the announcement will be made. The angels to, uh, are to gather the elect. Here, I think, my own interpretation, the elect, of Israel at a future time. And only those who are faithful to Jesus at that time enter uh, the, the gate and go through the things that are prophesied about earlier. At, at some, and at some point in time, the Son of Man will be the judge and separate those who are welcomed into His presence and those who are excluded from His presence based on the genuineness of their faith and their, uh, their acceptance by God for eternity. So, if that's what the uh, parable is about, what, what was he looking for with the disciples first through this parable? The, uh, the eleven had asked the question, summarized, when will these things be? Jesus focused his answer, his, his teaching of them in three different ways. First, he says, you don't know the hour. 
We don't know the hour, or the disciples didn't know the hour, and they wanted to know when it would be. And Jesus told them the simple fact. Only God, the Father, knows the hour. And He alone knows the exact sequence of events. He alone knows the, over, the details of the plan. He's given us some hints, some, some, like He did to the disciples. He did not really answer their questions in a full and A, B, C, D type of way. There may be a chronology to what's there that he did say, uh, and he is prophesying things that are going to happen, but just little glimpses. Why? I think it's because that wasn't his main point. He was speaking as a prophet, but he was speaking as, as the Son of Man, the sent one of God, who was drawing his disciples into the work for them that was to come. That's my understanding of what's going on here. And what he's trying to do, first of all, is tell them they don't know the hour. Only God knows the hour. And the implication of that is he wants his disciples to live as if it may be longer than you were thinking or wishing for. And the second aspect of that is he wants them to live as well as if it may be sooner. He's not telling you when, so there's a couple sides to that. He wants you to live as if he might come in the next minute. And he also wants you to prepare and live wisely that it may be a longer period of time. Jesus, I think, is telling them not to focus on the exact time or the signs of the time itself. But he's urging relationship with the disciples, his relationship with us. I was one really spending a lot of time trying to figure it all out when he's coming in the future. But I don't think, here, at least from here, this is not the main point. His main point was to draw the disciples along the path of knowing and following him and, <clears throat> and living as if he's uh, going to return at any, at any moment. The second main aspect was to keep watch for my return. He did outline the kind of tribulation that would be, would be ahead, some of the signs that the disciples could walk, watch for to interpret his coming. They gave, the Lord gave him one specific in the in the prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem, he told them, you're go one piece of the time puzzle was, you're going to see it in your generation. The temple was destructed, just as Jesus said it would be. Uh, he wants us to understand the nature. He, he does want his disciples to understand the big picture, though, of the signs of the times and the, the nature of the evil forces of, that are at work in the world to, uh, to lead to the kind of events that Jesus described. And every age may have been able to say this, but in our age we still have those evil forces of sin in the leadership and power structures of the world. I'm not saying all politicians are this or that, but I am saying that there are these signs taking shape today in terms of the tremendous volatility of the world following the nature of uh, the evil powers of sin and the powers that exist in the world. Understand those and live in light of those things uh, on our, in the area we control, which is ourselves and our, uh, the world that we're in. That could talk could go on for a long time. And then he says, be prepared. And he makes, he, the Lord says to them, really three things by this parable. He says, you need to be genuine in your faith so that you are accepted by 
the Son of Man at all times. And know, as David pointed out last week, know His presence with you at all times. He wants you to uh, be prepared for His coming in a way that is personal. It is it's part of your uh, spiritual and personal development. It's your primary objective is to be known and to know Him and to live for Him. Those, those are the main elements, I think, of the parable. Your faith ought to be a genuine one, that you are identified by the gatekeeper as being one of his. And we know that that is by being, uh, it's not something you can pretend, it's not something that can be shared. It is the personal faith that you are to have in God and live uh, by the power of Christ and his spirit uh, to live in a way that's uh, um, Live in a way that God wants us to live. He also, as we've seen in these parables, wants us to be not only of faith, but faithful. He doesn't want just a profession of who we are. He wants the real oil, the real spirit of God, the truth of God, living and dwelling in us and framing and shaping our thoughts, our actions, and our uh, our work for Him uh, together in His service. Uh, so... The uh, second one that's there, faith, faithfulness, letting your light shine. I think the lamp is an obvious for for us to speak the word of God to others. And I'm not talking preaching, or giving out tracts are all legitimate things, but every each and every day to be sensitive to God's leading in our lives, in our in our relationship with Him, but also reaching out to those around us uh, as people who also. Uh, need to know the God we know and try to help them along that process by whatever help that uh, that uh, need can be filled. And then in wisdom, Jesus is looking was looking for wise servants. And wisdom, by definition, is an application practically of the things that we know. And in, in the practice of wisdom, he wants us to use the talents, the gifts, the resources he has given us for him by his power flowing in our lives out to others. I, I don't have time to uh, go back through the those definitions, but you can read those again at your leisure with the things that we have said. Jesus, when he calls us to watch, is asking for all of these things in a spiritual way in our lives. To frame our lives such that we protect ourselves, have boundaries from the evil that's around us. And on the other side, to be expected be expectant of His working in our life every day. So each and every day we see Him acting in our lives and showing us needs, showing us what we're to be doing and uh, advancing His kingdom that is here now and will be shaped in the future according to His own His own will. Coming up, the last slide is... Uh, I guess I had some... Oops, I knew how to run this. The question before us has been and should continue, who then, who now is you and me? Very poor grammar, but that's the question. Who then are we before him as we look for that kingdom that's to come and how we are to live in that kingdom now for his honor and for his glory? Let's close in prayer, shall we? Dear God, our Father, we're before you as the mighty, majestic, glorious and sovereign King. We are so thankful to be included in the knowledge of you, 
by a revelation of yourself through so many, in so many ways, through the creation that you've made, through the Word of God that you've left with us, and importantly, by the Spirit of God who leads us into truth your, of your understanding each and every day as we receive you. We thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. We recognize that as he went there, he was preparing his disciples for that work. And yet they did not watch. They abandoned him. They were confused by the event. But once the Lord was resurrected, as we were remembering in our communion together, it became so much clearer and they became that much more committed and able to serve you by the power of your word and your spirit uh, to do the work that you gave them to do. Likewise for us, Lord, we thank you for your death on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for uh, doing the work of salvation. And we thank you for the gracious call that we have been, that we have received in, in turning to you in faith. We thank you for, with that promise, the blessing of your presence with us each and every day as we live in your kingdom. And as we look forward to the a future hope that is there for every Christian to, after death, be with you for all eternity. We thank you for that. And we know that the knowledge of that will help to fuel and feed our minds with the kind of life we should live now. Help us to be empowered by the teaching of your word this morning from its understanding and through its being written on our minds and hearts by the Holy Spirit and helps us to serve you as we would and please you in Jesus' name. Amen.